Hi everyone! Welcome to the first ever episode of Lit Tea. I'm your host, Sabrina Latvi, and today I'm joined by John Cusick, literary agent slash senior VP at Folio Literary Management. He's also the author of the YA novels Girl Parts and Cherry Money Baby and the middle grade series Dimension Y. And I'm super excited to get started. So let's do this thing. Hi. Hi. So you want to get started? Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. And I love that we're both wearing our like matching. We've got twin power glasses going on over here. Oh yeah. They're definitely writer glasses. I think. Yeah. Mine always fall down my nose. I got this stuff. It's called Nerd Wax. Yeah, we got that too, but it didn't work. I couldn't get it to, to work for me. It'll, okay. So mine, it makes mine stick halfway down my nose. Right. So it's like, it's not going to go all the way off, but it'll stick. Yeah. No, I know. I have the same problem. Mine go down like so far. My nose is so little. It's awful. <laughs> All right. So how did you get into agenting? Um, well, when I was in college, like uh, work study job at the school was working at our local independent press. So it was like West Press that did mostly poetry. And I was a permissions assistant, which meant that when someone wanted to use, say, you know, a line from a Robert Blythe poem in their book as an epigraph or something, they would call us and I would do the, the paperwork. And I really liked it. I thought, you know, the book business is really a fun place to work if you have to work anywhere, right? And, and if you're going to be in a business, might as well be in a fun one. So after college, I, I moved to New York and I started interviewing for, you know, editorial assistant positions because I didn't really know anything else. I thought editor was really the only track in publishing. And sort of by accident, I, uh, I ended up interviewing to be a literary agent's personal assistant. Really, it was a dog walker's job. But what caught my attention about it was that it was, you know, to assist a, a literary agent. And I was fortunate enough in Scott Trammell, my first boss, to find a guy who really was interested in mentoring me. And I learned a ton from him. And working for Scott, you know, I, I quickly realized a couple of things. One was that the kids book world was definitely one that I wanted to stay in. Scott was exclusively a kid lit agent. So that's kind of how I wound up in this space. But working for him, it didn't take long to realize that I really liked kidlit publishing. I really liked the people. It was a very accessible space. It's a very progressive space. I mean, it's got a long way to go, but compared to uh, other parts of publishing or other parts of media, I mean, it's a pretty cool place to be. And then beyond that, uh, working with him for a few months or a year or so, I started to realize that I really wanted to be on the agenting side of the fence rather than editorial. I really wanted to have that very close relationship with the author and to kind of you know, make my own way. You know, it's the fun part about an agenting uh, career is that, you know, you kind of live or die off your own submissions and cleverness and whatnot. And that's very exciting. So yeah, so it was kind of uh, an accident that I happened. That was the first proper publishing job that I had. But being there, I realized that, yeah, this is where I want to stay. I kind of like got on at the first stop and just stayed there, you know? Okay, cool. When did you switch to Folio? So I, I was with Scott for a few years and then I moved over to a literary agency called Greenhouse Literary, okay. which is based mostly in the UK, though now uh, Chelsea Eberly is a US-based agent there. She's great. Mm -hmm. um, and I was there for a few years, very happy, but Folio came calling and it was a bigger agency with a bigger office, or I should say an office. Greenhouse was all remote at the time. Okay. And so for a couple of reasons, you know, moving up to a bigger place and having some more office resources and back office resources, for a number of reasons, it just felt like a better fit for me at the time and I've been here ever since and it's great I mean it's I couldn't imagine being at a better agency for me it's got you know it's a it's a large group now it's it's a lot bigger than when I started but it still feels uh, 
like a very intimate gathering of agents. We work together a lot. I do a lot of co-agenting. So it's very convivial that way. So yeah, it's been a great experience being here. They're very different from like the more work from home experiences I had earlier in my career, you know? Mm -hmm. Okay, so what book made you a reader? That's a good question. And it would probably take a, you know, there's probably a lot of answers. I think that the main one and probably the easy answer that I got to go with is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by by Douglas Adams. Okay. I was a sci-fi nerd as a kid. I loved comedy. I had a really goofy sense of humor. And a friend of my stepfather's, like just this, like just lovely man, this young guy, he probably was in his 30s, but he seemed ancient to me at the time <laughs> when I was a kid. Like just struck up a conversation with me at like a dinner party, like talking to the kid at the table. And the next time he came to visit, he's like, you should read this. And he brought the omnibus, like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It was like four books in one hardcover. And I was just instantly obsessed. And I think ever since, very comedic genre stuff, that kind of very irreverent sense of humor. And I think one of the great things about Douglas Adams is he always seems to write with the reader's experience first and foremost in his mind. And I think that kind of like very performative, reader-friendly writing is the sort of stuff that I really am drawn to as an agent. So I'll draw that connections. I think like as an early reader, that kind of joyfulness really spoke to me in the writing. And uh, as an agent, that's the kind of thing I seek as well. In between, there was definitely a very pretentious period that I went through in college. And, and I still love very pretentious and very literary books. You know, next to Douglas Adams, my favorite author is Vladimir Nabokov. But those two together are like the perfect bizarro Venn diagram of, of my uh, of my taste, I would say, pre-publishing, you know, as I was coming in. Well, you have a background in Russian literature as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So yeah, the, the, the Nabokov thing is probably a bit of a giveaway. But I started, I became a Russian literature major because I wanted to take a Nabokov course that they were offering at my school. Oh, okay. But I love Russian literature. It's hard to describe what it is about it that I love. But I, I'll start by talking about like Dostoevsky and uh, he loves a good wild dinner party scene in the <laughs> middle of a book you know what I mean where everyone just starts swearing and throwing food and like yes I just love that <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think that like his his writing was definitely a, a big joy for me in college and beyond but yeah I love Russian literature it's it's very meta as a as a body of fiction like a lot of it is written to be like oh this is a book that someone found and now we're gonna like you're going to get to read their stories that they wrote, but there's no, that uh, that author is an imaginary construction. <laughs> Anyways, I've gotten off on a long tangent, but Russian literature is very cool. That's all. <laughs> hey, I asked. It, it made sense with your response. Is Okay, so is Hitchhiker's Guide also what made you want to be a writer? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I definitely wanted to write stories since I was since I could read, you know? Okay. Those two things always seemed one and the same. It's like you see a cartoon when you're a kid and you want to pretend to be in that cartoon. And if you read something, then you want to write something. So I think it was always kind of there. But books like Hitchhikers definitely had me going to my computer and tackling really wild, silly stories where just goofy things happen one after the other. There's another much less famous author, Robert Asprin, who wrote a series of fantasy novels for adults, but that were all very comedic and they centered around a young character. They might have been considered YA had they 
already been published a few uh, decades later. Oh, interesting. But both Robert Asprin and Douglas Adams were very silly, and their adventures were very kind of seemingly irreverent and sort of random. And as a young writer, to feel like, oh, wait a second, it doesn't matter what happens, as long as it's fun, that was definitely an encouraging philosophy to have, you know what I mean, going in? Mm-hmm. Um, I think if I had started being obsessed with writers whose plots were a lot denser or who were much more complex, maybe I would have been more intimidated, but they gave me a false sense of confidence because they made it look so easy. You can do anything. Yeah, exactly. They made it look easy, you know. Nice. Um, okay. What do you do outside of agenting and writing? (laughs) Not a lot. It's okay. Um, I do nothing, so. No, that's okay. So I, I, I write, um, I play the piano. I love to, uh, I've written musicals for, for fun, just as a, as a lark. For a while I was working on a musical about the great British Bake Off, but with a murder in it. Yes. Oh my gosh. I think there's already a great British baking musical on the way out, so I think someone scooped me, but yeah, and and beyond that. Is it really? Yeah, I think so. Someone <laughs> sent me a text this morning being like, oh, they got to it first. So there will be a great British baking musical of some kind, it sounds like. But yeah, so I love to do that. My wife and I, um, we love to go to the beach. We'll go to Coney Island on the weekends. And, nice you know, ride the roller coaster like we're 10 and, and, you know, eat too much fried food on the beach. That's just one of my favorite things to do in the summer is to be there. So yeah, I think it's, it's like books and sun and sand are like those three things together are my, are my fave. And the piano. And the piano too. The piano you can't bring to the beach quite so, quite as easily. No, no. You know, um. You should try though. That would make a really great photo shoot. Well, my mother is a busker. She plays piano in the subway. Oh, awesome. And she has built her own mobile piano unit with wheels and a keyboard that she can wheel down into the um, subway. That is so incredible. Oh my god. Yeah, so it runs in the family. There is there is precedent in the Cusick family for mobile piano playing. I love this. I did not know I was going to learn this about you. That's amazing. <laughs> um, we kind of covered folio questions as well a little bit. And you said that it is a main office or a central office that you have. Yeah, so... Um, Um, So Folio has a central office in Manhattan. During pre-pandemic times, I was usually there three or four days a week and then working from home one or two. It's great to have a central office on occasion. It's great to have a place to go and to just see other human beings and kind of interact. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, an agent's life can get very solitary. Mostly you're working by yourself, kind of looking for new writers, developing their stuff, a lot of reading, a lot of, you know, sending stuff out to editors, but you're not usually working on big group projects with people, right? So um, getting to interact with other people, I think is, is really lovely at the Folio office. But I think beyond that, some of the reasons that I really love it as an agent and also as an author, I'm also a folio client, is that, you know, we have an amazing dedicated foreign rights team. So what they do is they just focus on taking folios great titles and selling them in translation or say to the UK or Australia. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a dedicated audio rights person, a dedicated contracts guy, we have in-house film advisors and whatnot. So there is like, even though it's a, it's I work with my authors very one-on-one. Like I think that they have a small agency feel with me, but you've got the big agency back office to back you up. Like I've got someone who can negotiate your contracts for you and I've got someone who's focusing on audio. You really do get to have a team when you're represented here. So that's the kind of thing that I think is really great for an author to have. And as an agent, it's great to work at a place that provides those kinds of services, you know. 
So, and you're also a senior vice president there, which is way up there. So what, what does that mean? What do you do? What, what's, how does that differ from just agenting and what kind of responsibilities do you have and such? So very little. <laughs> <laughs> Is the honest answer, but I'll say, you know, with the, the, the way Folio is sort of structured is that a lot of it is based around sales. So as you go on, as you sell more books, as you hit different tiers, your title goes up. And it's also um, connected to experience. How many years have you been with the, the company and whatnot? But as you're at the SVP level, like some of the things that we do is like recently we reorganized our internship program so we can start paying our interns. Yay. Love to see it. Yeah. Like tomorrow after work, I'm going to be doing sort of an extra after work Zoom session with our interns and a few other agents because, you know, again, pre-pandemic, usually we would take them out for like pizza or a happy hour a couple of times a semester and now we can't do that so we're trying to provide something else mm-hmm. so interestingly like in terms of what new things have come along with being an SVP it's a lot of working with sort of the administrative side of the internship program but I want to say and acknowledge to any of my colleagues listening here that there are others on the team who have done way more, <laughs> more for that program than I have so I don't mean to take credit um, but just since since the question was asked I'll say that's the kind of stuff that I've, I've been more involved in since, okay. since that title came along yeah no that's really cool and do y'all share submissions and stuff so we don't really share submissions okay. i will say it, the, the truth is i will share something with my colleagues if i don't think it's for me and i think that it might be for them and the reverse is definitely true however i think the the thing for writers to remember if we're going to be really candid is that happens very seldom i figured yeah it's a rare bird that i think something would be a really good thing for colleagues but for whatever reason I don't think it would be a good thing for me like that's just a rare combination of elements for a book I'll say what does sometimes happen in my case is while I do represent some picture books I'm really not actively taking on new picture book authors Mm -hmm. so sometimes someone will send me say a picture book text or maybe they're an author illustrator or something and I'll think man this is really good or I think it might be really good but I'm just not in the space right now where I can tackle a picture book or be a great picture book agent to this person. So I'll send it to say Emily Van Beek, who's closed to queries, but she's a picture book genius and she does a ton of picture books for Folio. And so I would send it to her and say like, hey, if this is something for you, do you want to reach out to them? Like, let me know. So that will happen from time to time if it's kind of a a genre or a market misfire. And I'll say too, Emily does that for me. She tends to not represent very genre heavy, like sci-fi and fantasy Mm -hmm. texts. So sometimes she'll get something that's a little bit too out there for her but if it sounds really good she'll refer it to me so I do I you know I guess it does happen it's just it is something that I would say probably happens a couple of times a year at the most you know okay while we're talking about this do you want to jump into stats Mm. kind of give me some numbers of like how many queries you get how many you request how many you pass on that kind of thing yeah sure so so this varies and it has changed over time but in general I get about 15 queries a day and that's that's seven days a week so it's like a hundred and change a week and it it has changed over the years I will say I mean here's what I'll say I will say it's probably one in 
50 queries will I request a full manuscript. Okay. So it's, it is a very small threshold. In years gone by, I used to request more manuscripts than I do now. And the reason was I had more time to read and also I had more space on my list. So I was just like, mm -hmm. yes, more, more, more all the time, more. Now I'm, I'm much more selective. I can take on fewer new clients. So I tend to be more selective when I'm requesting. So there's a lot more projects where I'm like, man, that sounds pretty good, but I just can't right now. So of those projects that I request, I, on a busy year, maybe sign on about five or six new clients. Mm -hmm. I think this is gonna be a, a, a small year for taking on new people. Like I said, I'm pretty packed up at the moment, but that changes. What will happen, I've noticed for myself, is that all of a sudden, at a certain point in the year, I'll like three clients, I'll get them all at once. You know what I mean? Just because like the timing will align and the things happen to be there. So it really, it really does vary. Okay. And I'll say probably one in five of my new clients doesn't come through the query inbox. So a client maybe refers them or, well, I don't know, maybe an editor refers them. I've had that happen too, or an editor has yeah. an author whose uh, agent has left or they're firing them or whatever. And they'll say, hey, I think you would be great match for this person. Which is always super appreciated, as you can imagine. So those are some of the some of the ways that they they'll get to me. But um, it is there is a, a massive volume of querying writers, so it can be a bit of a, a bit of a numbers game just to kind of break through, you know. Oh yes, totally. All the numbers. So when you are taking on new clients, what makes an ideal client to you? So this is kind of how the process goes, right? Like I look around and I say it's time for some new clients. I, you know, I, I have this space, there's, there's, you know, I, I gotta get some new people on the list. And I'm, I, my radar is up 24 seven for what is selling right now. I'm always thinking about what are editors buying? Because my, I'm not gonna say my only job, but my main job for you as an agent is to sell that book to the existing editors in town. Mm -hmm. So for instance, <laughs> I don't have any kids. And sometimes people ask like, well, how do you know what kids wanna read? And I always say, I don't. I have no idea what kids wanna read but I do know what 50 editors in, in New York want to read. That I need to know what they are acquiring, and I trust that they know what kids want to read down the extra step of the line. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking about what are editors buying right now? You know, are they generally looking for projects that are more upbeat? Are they more open to darker stuff? Like are folks kind of into a particular genre at the moment? Right now, horror is more viable than it has been in the past. Like I just, my biggest deal last year for a YA book was for a horror novel. So is there a particular genre that of the moment people are kind of more into or more open to? So there are these things, there's kind of a field of play in my head before I even start looking at the query. Mm -hmm. Once I start looking at the queries, I'm looking for pitches, concepts that feel viable. So that means that the, the idea behind the project, like the basic setup or hook, feels like something that's like, I think people are gonna wanna read that. Like that sounds exciting and different and I'm imagining if I describe it to an editor, they would kind of go, oh, cool, oh, wait, and then her father is that person? Or like, and they go, where? Like, oh, interesting, like those kinds of reactions. And you can know by instinct if you're having them as an agent, like, are you intrigued? And then if that idea is there in the pitch, in the query, I'm like, oh, that sounds interesting. I'll, re I'll go on and I'll read the sample. And I start to see how do they write, like line by 
line? You know, do they have a voice that works for the market that they're writing in? Is their writing smooth? Is their voice interesting? Or, or if not interesting, is it transparent? So I'm not even thinking about the voice. I'm just wrapped up in the story. Mm -hmm. So that's where I'm looking at the line level writing. And if those two things are syncing up where it's like, man, the, the paragraphs are solid to great and the pitch is really interesting and intriguing, I'll request the full manuscript. Okay. And at that point, I'm reading for, okay, the pitch seems good. The line level writing seems good. Do they follow through on it? Does it keep my attention? Are there, you know, if there are problems in the manuscript, are they fixable problems? Because I don't expect a manuscript to be perfect when it comes to me. I expect we're gonna be working on it. You know, I'm an editorial agent. I'm a writer myself, like we get very crafty. So I'm not expecting it to be perfect, but there are certain problems which as an agent, I have the time and the bandwidth to help a writer solve and certain problems I don't. So for instance, we talked about the voice, like I'm reading to see in those first few paragraphs is the voice there. Mm -hmm. If that voice isn't there, if the line level writing isn't there, I can't teach that to a writer in the course of this manuscript edit. It's super hard. Right? There are certain techniques I can point out, but if it's not there, like that whole book from my subjective point of view would need to be rewritten to get the voice sounding better word to word, line to line, right? Mm -hmm. So that's not a problem I can fix. That writer needs to keep working on their craft, keep writing, keep polishing, but they're not ready for me as an agent yet. But if say, you know, halfway through the book, there's a pacing issue, it kind of slows down maybe, or the ending is really like, wow, I really loved it. But at the ending, I once had a manuscript that I absolutely loved. And at the very end, the main character um, feeds the villain's family to him in a soup. And it is, it was just the most like out of left field, like it just didn't work. And I love a twisty ending, it just didn't work. And I remember saying to the author, I'm like, look, I really like this book, but I gotta be honest, this ending really didn't work for me. And she was like, yeah, I really didn't know how to end it. And so we worked together and we found a better ending, but that was like a fixable problem, right? So I'm reading to see like, what are the issues? Are they fixable? You know, is this something that with a revision or two, I feel like is gonna be ready to go out to editors. Okay. So these are kind of the things that I'm evaluating in my head. And if all of those things are aligning, and sometimes, you know, I'm a third of the way through the book, I'll tell you, uh, Hops of Fizal's We Hunt the Flame, I wanted to offer on that book on the first page. Oh, wow. The pitch was amazing, and I knew from the writing, just the way this author introduced her main character, I'm like, this person can write. Like I just knew. And I think and I think I offered on it on that on that sample. And she was like, why don't you read the book first? And I was like, okay. <laughs> um and I did. So that's hilarious. But it's true. So sometimes you know that fast. Sometimes it takes longer to figure out whether or not something's gonna work. But once you do, I will usually then ask the author if they would like to hop on the phone. And at some point over the course of that call, I'm usually deciding whether or not I'm gonna make an offer. Okay. I'm, I'm usually, you know, I'm checking to see, do this person and I have a, a natural rapport? Like, do we communicate in a way that is compatible? Does it feel like we could work together for a decade and talk constantly and like have the same sense of humor or at least compatible ones? Mm -hmm. You know, you're checking to see if that personal connection is there because that's important, I think. It's super important. I mean, it's a, there's a lot of ups and downs with it and it's Especially in the downs, you just, you'd need someone in your corner. Exactly. And it shouldn't be painful to like <laughs> work with somebody that, you know, there's no guarantees on if y'all are going to get paid for it. So I think that's really true, you know, and sometimes it's like you could be on the phone with an agent and think to yourself, there's nothing bad or wrong about this person. But like, I just don't gel with them. Mm -hmm. They're just a stick in the mud or like they're <laughs> way too over the top. Like whatever my energy is, does not 
gel with them. And then, you know, I think obviously if you're like, wow, I don't have anyone else to choose from, that becomes a bigger decision. But oftentimes if one agent is offering, more than one agent will be interested. I think probably the majority of the time. I wonder if that's true. I guess I don't have any way to test that. I wonder if that's true. I do think it's quite often in my experience that when I'm offering on something, other agents are offering on it simultaneously. Okay. So, you know, sometimes you do have the privilege of being able to choose between different agents and different agenting styles. But I would say, you know, one of the things you can definitely ask or should be asking an agent on that phone call is about their communication style. You know, yes. how long does it take you to get back to things? Like figure that stuff out up front and make sure that their answers are okay with you. You know, because they you're asking, they should give you the honest answer. And so there shouldn't be any confusion down the line, right? But ask, how long does it take you to get back to your authors? How long does it take you to read a manuscript? What happens if that first book doesn't sell? Like these are the kind of awkward ask all the awkward questions to begin with and I'll say too that we're expecting them on that phone call mm -hmm. I've got my answers ready to go because I've been asked those questions so many times so it's totally fine does anyone ever surprise you with a question I'm sure there have been I wish I could okay. think of one off the top of my head I think sometimes I'm surprised I shouldn't be but I I'll say I notice that some authors have a lot to ask and are and are very like they, it seems like they've got a spreadsheet and it's very very detailed and like, it's funny because they'll ask a question, they'll say like, oh, well, what's your, how long does it take you to, you know, read a manuscript? And I'll go, okay, you know, this, this amount of time. And I'll go, mm, okay. And I'm like, was well, that a good thing? Like, <laughs> what did someone else say? What did my competition say? You know, uh, um, that's funny. you never know, you never know what, <laughs> so yeah. So it's, I think what I would say is that know that on those calls, the agents are just as nervous because, you know, we know we're competing too. I love hearing that. Aw. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's really true. And I have projects that I missed out on that I offered on and another agent got that are like, you know, my like forever it could have been. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like just I'll I'll just I'll never get over it. Aw. <laughs> See yeah. writers, we break agents' hearts too. It's true. I don't <laughs> think it isn't. We have gone all over this. I've got all these cute little papers printed out. We just went around this thing in circles. <laughs> okay, what we did talk about asking agents what their communication style is like, but you didn't tell us what your communication style is like and what you prefer. Yeah, sure. So um, I have clients that text me. I, you know, I, I'm on Twitter with my clients sometimes. I mean, I would say for me, I always respond to authors, my authors within 24 hours of getting an email. And I can't always jump on the phone same day, but I can usually do it within like the next day, if not on the same day. So I think I'm pretty available and communicative as, as agents go. Um, like I said, I don't work with an assistant. I do, uh, we do have an internship program and I do occasionally work with a one-on-one -on -one intern, but I always work with my authors one-on-one. -on -one, so there's mm -hmm. never kind of like a buffer. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Just different agents are different. And then reading wise, it usually takes me about 60 days to get a client an edit letter back. And the interesting thing is that that's not because it takes me 60 days to read the book. It usually only takes about two weeks to kind of read through the thing a second or third time and go through with the line edits and put it all together and whatnot. But there's always a line of like four or five projects stacked up, right? Mm -hmm. That were already there. I was gonna ask you if you ever get like a tornado project from your clients. Yes, so everyone always finishes at the same time. I don't know if that's just like the cycles of the moon or something. We get together. Oh, 
I don't know what happens, but it's true. Writers finish their books all at the same time and they all hand them in at the same time. I will say now what I've had, some of my clients have, have figured out how to hack this system, <laughs> which is that they'll ask me ahead of time, when would be a good time to send this book? Like, when are you free next? Oh. And so I'll look at the schedule and I'll say like, well, I should be done with my current reading list, like with nothing else ahead of you. like at this date and they're like great and they'll send it that day to like reserve their place in line and so they can get a speedy mm -hmm. read which is totally like you know that's totally fine they're they're reserved they've got their spot so um yeah so it depends but i try to be pretty communicative and available i never want my authors to be sitting back being like what's going on like where's my agent is this uh -huh. working you know that kind of stuff it's scary yeah especially when you have a lot of questions and you don't know what's going on i think that there's a real fear and i understand where it comes from of like is so and so avoiding me or not responding to me because they've lost interest in my work or because they no longer want to be my agent or whatnot mm -hmm. and i you know i think in all businesses in all walks of life there are people that avoid difficult conversations sometimes so I understand where that fear comes from but honestly I mean I think in, in my experience and the experience of, of the other agents that I work with agents just have a million things going on all the time and it just takes time sometimes to, to respond or to get back but usually if we're ready to fire a client that's not something we need to wait on if there's a problem, like if, you're, if your agent isn't happy with you, you're going to know, I think. So for better or worse. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, man. I like how this just took a dark turn. <laughs> I know. That, that didn't mean it to be that dark. It's okay. It's okay. What, what are reasons? Is this an like, okay question to ask? What are reasons yeah, sure. that you would fire a client for? Sure. Well, yeah. Well, I think that there's, there's a number of reasons that an agent and a client might part ways. And they're not all gloom and doom. I'll say that a not insignificant number of queries that I receive are from authors who have had a, other agents before me. I would say maybe a, a, almost a third of my clients had agents before me. Mm -hmm. um, so having multiple agents or having lost an agent or fired an agent isn't the taboo that I think some have felt it is in the past or maybe that it was in the past. You know, because agents leave the business, agents sometimes choose to focus on different markets and genres, which might mean that like, hey, your next YA book, your agent wants to do more adult stuff. It's not going to work out in that capacity. Mm -hmm. These days, agencies fold and just go away. God knows. So yeah. uh, knock on wood. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of reasons you can you can part ways with your agent. I'll say on the agent side, some of the reasons that I might want to part ways with an author are, I think the big one that, you know, a writer would want to know about is like, at what point do you part ways with an author if things like aren't selling or aren't going well? And for me, it's always a question of trying to sell new titles and how is that going? So if... You know, I've had some authors that like started at big houses with big advances and moved to smaller houses with small advances. I've had authors that have taken a completely different trajectory. So careers are always kind of moving around, right? But if I, let's say, have not been able to sell like three of your manuscripts in a row, no one's bought them, you know, we haven't been able to get an offer that we wanted, I would say at that point, both of us, me and the author, should be like, something's not working here. Like the alchemy of you and me is not leading to success mm -hmm. and something should change. You as the author should probably try something different. That makes sense. And I think that's really reasonable. Like I think if, if you know, your your agent hasn't been able to sell two, two or three books of yours, like that's something worth examining. But it does happen that the first title doesn't sell and you can move on to a second one. I mean, that's not so big of a deal. But I think if that happens over and over again, then things start to get a little tougher. Mm -hmm. You know, I've fired clients 
clients for saying unconscionable stuff online where I'm just like, I don't want to work with you. Like, it okay. just, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like as a person, I don't agree with your philosophy and how you treat people. So don't be a total dick. Okay. Don't be a jerk. So, but that's like, that's of course, that's any business, right? Like that's, you know, mm-hmm. there's no, I don't think there's a lot of trap doors. I would say that where I have noticed conflicts arise between authors and their agents can be when the agent hasn't been communicating and when simultaneously the author starts to make a lot of assumptions about what that means. Like I've had authors, uh, and I've heard that this happened to me and I've heard this from other agents where an author will really build up a big head of steam because they assume that because an agent isn't responding all these things must be happening and they can't trust this person and you know it's because of this or that reason or and they'll write this like super angry email like just you know they've they've convinced themselves that all these things are true in their head and then the agent is like i was in a car accident or like my mom died like i haven't been able i haven't been on email because of this very legitimate reason or like hey listen like i'm coming to you with great news today um you know sorry it took the editor this long to get back to me but like what is this what is all this anger? You know what I mean? Where is this coming from? So my advice is always like communicate, communicate, communicate. If you're concerned, start from the uh, point of view that um, wait to hear their side. If you're like, hey, this doesn't seem great. Let me tell my agent, this doesn't seem great. Could you tell me what's going on here? And wait to hear what they have to say. Mm-hmm. And I would say the same thing is true on the agent side. If there was a dust up or a squabble or some kind of like issue with a, you know, your editor or whatnot, like I always go to the author, I'm like, hey, what's going on here? Like, what is it that you're really trying to achieve or what is the big concern here truly so talk it through do not assume and find out firsthand if that agent is really dysfunctional or deficient in the way you think you know verify you know before you go firing somebody or you go haul off on somebody because you know it's a small business and yeah. people talk you know what I mean like I've definitely had a I, I have had an author query me where I spoke to their agent and their agent said you know I fired them for really bad behavior and here's why I don't I didn't want to work with them but you know everybody's different you know agents are people we're, we're, we're mostly pretty reasonable humans so I think just talk communicate your questions and your concerns and your expectations and you know usually you can you can resolve most issues without having to burn a bridge you know yes okay that's all great advice always communicate always communicate and 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 remember that like it's okay to it's okay to part ways with an agent you know what I mean? It's not necessarily the end of the world. It might be a kind of graduation, really. It might be that like you're ready for a different approach to your work or the next phase of your career, whatever it is. But um, yeah. So yeah, I'm just sitting here going, oh yes, nodding along, nodding along over here. But yeah, no, totally with you on all this. The communication is so important. I'll say too, and maybe this is something that goes in, maybe it doesn't, but you know, right now as an agent, I my time is super limited. Mm-hmm. Like I am, my, my day is packed with my current client stuff so that's why I'm so selective about bringing on new stuff other agents who are maybe just starting out in agenting let's say just starting out but newer agents mm-hmm. can have more room on their list and can have more space in their head to edit and dedicate to uh, an author either an author who has like a multi-platform career and need someone to kind of have a top-down look at everything and spend a lot of time figuring out like okay this is what you should do next here and this is what you should do with your merchandising or whatever or just to like spend time on a book that needs a little bit more TLC than a currently busier agent necessarily has Mm -hmm. so sometimes it's about transitioning from agents that have a different communication style sometimes it's transitioning to someone who has uh, who is hungrier who has more space for you that's a real that's legit you know yes yes 
I love all of that. When you request a manuscript, when do you stop reading? Do you ever stop reading? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean, most of the time okay. <laughs> is the truth, you know, because, well, because, you know, I request the manuscript. Most of those don't turn into offers. You know, there's still, you know, there's still another kind of threshold there of, mm -hmm. of you know, I would say maybe one in 20 Again, somewhat arbitrary, but one in 20 requested manuscripts actually turn into an offer of representation. Mm -hmm. You know, when do I stop reading? I think that, um, you know, your first act should do a few things that are fairly standard in most stories, especially if you're talking about like either adventure stories for teens or adventure stories for kids. And they should be pacey, they should engage me with the character's main conflict. You know, I should be engaged with the character as a person and like them. If those things start to veer off, say in the first 30 pages or first 50 pages, that's usually when I'm stopping by. Okay. If I'm going to stop, it's usually within the first 100 pages. And I think that that's true of editors as well. I think that both agents and editors kind of make up our minds in a sense on the first 100 pages. It's like we fall in love or we don't, or we're like, we're we buy into what you're selling or we, we have it. Like you've convinced us or you haven't sometimes in the first hundred pages. Mm -hmm. And then after that hundred pages, like if I see a problem, I'm much more likely to be like, that's okay, we can fix that. I mean, there are published books that I'll put down after like a hundred pages sometimes just because like, just for whatever reason, I'm, just, I'm not gonna say which one. <laughs> oh yeah, well I would say, you know, I have a terrible attention span, which is great for an agent because I need to be, <laughs> I need to represent the most difficult to capture reader, and I do. <laughs> it's yourself, yes, you're perfect. It's me, you know. That's awesome. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, so that's, so usually when I'm, I stop reading, it's because the book has not kicked off into its main adventure or plot line in a way that feels really compelling and satisfying, you know. Um, the storytelling has, has lost me, even if the line level writing has stayed consistently good, you know. Does the line level writing fall off a lot too or no? Yeah, maybe. I think that that is, there is a bit of truth to that. I think what, maybe more so than the first 30 pages, I notice it with the first 10 pages. Yes. Like once I get to the material that you wouldn't see in the query. So like, you know, every, most agents ask for more or less the same amount of material when you query. Sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> Is it usually like 10 pages-ish? It can vary between, I'm telling you, it's like between five pages and 50 pages. Really? And sometimes it's a Word document and sometimes it's pasted and sometimes it's a form and sometimes it's an email. It's always different. And sometimes they want a synopsis and sometimes they want like a separate bar. It's really fun out there right now. <laughs> Man, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. So back on queries, do personalizations matter to you and how much? So they do a little bit. I think if you can find an organic personalization to include in your query, you should. By organic, I mean you've read an interview with this agent, you know, you know that they're looking for this particular thing because you looked on their manuscript wishlist page or whatnot. That's fine. I think um, you want to avoid really reaching for one, like if you don't have one, you can't find one, you don't want to like make one up or uh, you don't want to say like, I know that you're looking for this kind of thing when I'm not. <laughs> so 
So personalizations, I think, are nice if you can do them, but they're not a requirement, and it's not like I'm going to be offended or not interested if there's no personalization. One thing that I do think makes a significant enough difference, though, is um, using the agent's name. So Dear Mr. Cusick or Dear John. Do you really, like, get that many without a name on there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All the time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. My blanket is at least Dear Awesome Agent, so at least there's a little. Yeah. And then you go fill in the name. But it's really not. Put the names in. Be nice. We do get ghosted a lot, and we get a lot of Dear Author rejections on this end. So... I'll be the first to tell you the power imbalance is not fair and it's on the agent side. It's so not fair. I know. It's the truth. It is the truth. But yeah, yeah. The, I think the if you can just get the agent's name in there, that's enough. I also say too, um, if you're copying and pasting a lot of stuff, like you're pasting in your pitch and then you're going to put the agent's name on top, do the thing where you like select the whole email and put it in a font. Does yours change the font size? So it doesn't happen a lot. And again, this isn't like a deal breaker, but it does, it's not a great look when it's like, dear John, and then like this tiny little thing that's the pitch. And then like they clearly wrote their bio separately because it's like in a different font. And then, you know what I mean? I've like, noticed that a few times with some emails I've sent to people and I'm just like, oh, that looks so good. I don't, like, I wouldn't want any of your listeners to freak out. Like it's not a deal breaker. It's not an embarrassing thing to happen or whatnot, but just like a, like a extra, this is like putting the, the plastic cover on your book it's just a little extra it's just the shine the shine yes the little shine put a little shot put the name on there mm-hmm, mm-hmm. do the whole thing together I, i'll do the same thing i'll i have a really bad habit i have to read everything 40 times when i do stuff so like if i you know put it in and then i have to go fix it over here and then i'm like wait 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 copy and paste it because it's gonna look different like the one word and, yeah. yeah i'll make a million excuses for it like I, my vision is bad and i'm number dyslexic and all this stuff all of which is true however i am the king of typos like it just I live in fear of sending out emails with mistakes in them with you know and I'll reread them a million times yep me too me too and still any any option to have like a delayed send where you hit send and then you can stop it from going 10 seconds later like I have that on every app that I own (gasps) I love it I don't know what's wrong with me but that I'm but I will say I'm very sympathetic in that case, to, to typo. So when people like spell my last name wrong mm-hmm. or they make a silly mistake, I'm always like, you know, friend, it's okay. <laughs> yes, I wish I had a copy editor that just would follow me around to fix all my stuff though, like all my personal stuff. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <gasps> do you read, always read sample pages and a query together or do you ever like not? There, it's, um, it's not uncommon for me to know from the query that it's a pass. I mean, to put aside the, you know, the dozens of queries I get that are for the wrong market or just really aren't for me and are kind of almost sent to me mistakenly, like not understanding my, my area or whatnot. If you put those aside, I will say, um, you know, a lot of queries are pitches for things that as they are pitched sound too much like everything else or they there's nothing in them that sounds distinct very vague right like i might read a ya query about a character who grows up in a dystopian future and she runs away from her town and meets up with a guy who's part of the resistance and together they'll have to overthrow this horrible government now you could say well what what other book is that and i would say well but just isn't it basically kind of every book like where is the unique thing that would make the editor go oh really like Like, where is the surprise? Where is the unique detail? 
So if I read that query, I'm probably not gonna read those sample pages because I'll say that the best sentence in the world isn't gonna save a boring story. Like, particularly in YA and middle grade, because that readership, they absolutely can and do appreciate like a beautiful sentence, a beautiful metaphor, a theme, but they read to find out what happens next, right? Like, is this story compelling? And actually that's one of the reasons why I stayed in Kidlet when I got there is because it is writer boot camp. Like, you must be able to tell a good story about compelling characters. Like, you cannot hide behind, you know, your your beautiful prose. Your pretty sentences. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, no hiding behind your elaborate metaphors for industrialism. Like, is it a good story? Do we care? You know, and, and I think that's, that's really all that matters, you know? Yeah, no, that's fair. Okay, so what are your favorite writing tips? and querying advice other than including the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for query tips, I would say um, if you're not doing this already, you know, make yourself a spreadsheet. There are so many agents that I would suggest submitting in heats of five to 10 at a time and waiting a certain, you know, predetermined period of time before you add more agents to that list. Mm -hmm. Um, The reason you do this is because if everyone has similar feedback, it gives you the opportunity to, you know, revise before going out to more people. Uh, which is very important. I would say um, become an expert in your market. That's my advice. This is really what's going to make the difference. Like I was going to go into all this crafty stuff, but honestly, like we can talk till we're blue in the face about how to write better stories, which is essential. But what you should take away from this, oh, listening reader, is that if you want to be a published YA author, why aren't you an expert in the YA market? Like, why not? You should be. Like, who's publishing what? Who are the big names out there? Like, what do their covers look like? What do their titles look like? Like, I have um, a a reputation of being good at titles um, at my agency. And one of the things that I'll do, or used to do all the time, is like go and stand in front of the shelves at Barnes & Noble and just be like, what's the vibe of the titles today? Like, just lots of single words, lots of sentences, lots of we were this, they were always that. When we were, someone tweeted something that every adult book is called all the tiniest things we didn't know were small. (laughs) And like every YA book is like the bone of daughter and blood and bone. You know what I mean? Like it's all the- This is true. There are trends, right? So so go absorb that stuff and, and get a sense of the kinds of books that are very popular right now. And that will influence the work that you're focusing on and how you approach it. Like the only reason I as an author got a YA novel published is because I was working at a literary agency. And I got this amazing graduate style education in how do you put together a book that people want to buy and that people want to read. And that's very different from how do you write the great American novel or how do you write the great Russian novel, right? Or Russian, yes. Right? <laughs> so this is a tangent. I forgot completely where we started on this. So I'll just we stop started. <laughs> <laughs> we started on querying tips and you said to be big in the market, know the market. And yeah. and yeah, and I'm going to piggyback on that. Read, 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 read all the books. I need to post more about the books that I love because I read all the books and then I never tell anybody that I love them. <laughs> 
Well, and you know what? I'll tell you this. I don't have a lot of time to like read everything that's out there. So what I'll do is I will download digital samples, which you can do through like Amazon, if that's your e-reader, Sony, if that's your e-reader, whatever. You get the digital samples of the first 15 pages or what have you mm-hmm. of like every big YA book that's out there right now. Anything that's on the most anticipated list, anything that's um, E says it's the best YA, you know, it's on the BuzzFeed list. I'll download those samples and I'll read them all. Like I'll sit down for like two hours at a stretch and just read the openings of like every YA being published that season. And if it's something that really grabs me personally, I'll read the whole thing. And if it's a very, very big book, I'll read the whole thing. But that's a way that I can get kind of like a snapshot picture of like, this is what it feels like out there right now. This is what the style of the voice is that people are talking about. And um, this is the kind of thing that's working, you know, in different genres and different uh, markets and whatnot. So, yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's talk about you specifically and a wish list. So give us a broad scope of what, well, you're closed right now. Do you have any idea when you're going to open again? Later this year. Okay. I, I mean, definitely. Yeah. Before the end of 2022. You don't have to put an actual date in that for this. I genuinely haven't made up my mind. <laughs> My mind. <laughs> Definitely, I will be closed through the month of August, and I may reopen in September or a little bit later in the fall. Okay. But almost certainly this year um, will I be reopening. And what am I looking for? So I represent primarily fiction novels in uh, the categories of middle grade and young adult with a little bit of crossover into the adult space. I get a lot of submissions of people who want to write kind of in this crossover universe of I kind of like YA, but I kind of want to do adult. That's fine. I, I look at that stuff. You know, I, I would say on my wish list, I would love to see a YA fantasy that is not within the aesthetics of medieval times. So in other words, like swords and sandals, like those are great, but like I would just love to see YA fantasy that takes up different kind of vibes, aesthetics, world building that feels really different and, and new. And then on the middle grade side, um, I love stuff that takes place in our world. So in, you know, modern time and place, but with some kind of fantastical elevating element. So, you know, the, okay. the family's, uh, you know, grandma's cookbook actually contains magical spells or... You know, we're, you know, the, uh, um, when you reach me is always my go-to fave middle grade comp. It's character driven, but there's surprise spoilers, time travel in it. You know what I mean? So it's like some elevating thing that makes it, um, that makes it a book that makes it something that couldn't happen in real life, I think is really fun. Okay, cool. I do, I do like genre stuff. I like horror. I like, you know, sci-fi and whatnot. I will say for, uh, for the most part for YA, um, I want sci-fi that is grounded on our planet rather than sort of star-faring YA. I find that difficult to sell, even though I think it's fun to read. And then finally, I would say on the adult side, you know, I'm looking for genre stuff, so sci-fi and, and a bit of fantasy. This is true across the board. Um, BIPOC authors, I mean, I, I, I feel like that's something that you shouldn't have to point out that you're looking for, but you do. So, mm-hmm. you know, always looking for more BIPOC authors. And I think I really want to emphasize that in, the, in that adult space, I see a lot of BIPOC authors querying me for YA, but I don't see them um, querying me, and maybe that's just me, but in this space for um, that crossover space. And I know 
those writers are out there. So I would say like, yeah, I want to see that stuff. And I know the editors want to see that your stuff as well. So, you know, write, send. We're excited to, to work with it. It is. It's really, it's really sad that that needs to be stated. And at the same time, when it's not on there, it's noticed. It's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember I was really hesitant to ever tweet explicitly, I am looking for we wouldn't have used the term BIPOC in, mm. in 2010, I don't think, but because I, I, fa I thought that it would be gauche and kind of sleazy. All you writers who are of color, like, come, come to me. Like, I'm, you know, I don't know. It just felt, it felt gross. Um, but then I did it, and all of these writers, I specifically did it, I remember it was about Muslim voices, and all of these writers reached out to me, and in their queries, they were like, thank you so much. Yes. Like, I didn't know that you were open to this kind of material. And stupid, privileged white me, what I realized then is that, like, yeah, you do, people don't know. And, and you do need to say it. You have no idea. And, you know, honestly, like, why should you assume anything good? You know what I mean? Like, why should you assume that someone's an ally if they're not saying so explicitly? I, I think it totally makes sense. But yeah. um, to that end, yeah, I'll just emphasize, like, I'm really, really um, dedicated and focused on continuing to sign on more BIPOC authors and also authors... Um, of and writing stories of disability yes. um, and non-cis non -cis creators, you know. Um, I'm, I identify as bisexual and I um, queer stories are just a really big uh, thing that are important to me personally. Um, so I really love working with those stories as well. So yeah, those are the, those are the historically very marginalized stories in, in Kidlet that I think we are uh, seeing an expanding space for, um, yes. and I think that we all need, yes. obviously, you know? Please. One, one thing I will say that probably should be on the record is that when it comes to being a queer author who may or may not be writing a story that is about queer characters, you do not owe your agent or the publishing industry any information about how you identify in your gender, in your sexuality, any of that business. Yeah. So... If you do not tell me in your query how you identify, I'm not going to ask. It's not, it's not my business, but it is something that you can share if you choose to. You don't owe that information to anybody. I will say, you know, if you are a queer author and your story is about queerness, you know, I have a client, Abdi Nazemian, who wrote an amazing book called Like a Love Story that is very much about the AIDS crisis, mm -hmm. very much about queer identity. Um, his character's sexuality is not incidental to the story in any capacity. I think I would want that book to be written by a queer man. You know what I mean? And so, so that's why I, am, I would want to know. But again, you do not need to, uh, you are under no obligation to out yourself to anybody in order to be published or get an agent. Yeah. I think that's, uh, that's worth saying in, in, uh, in the current sort of climate that we're in in YA, which is very positive in certain cases, but um, can also be uh, potentially exploitative uh, yes. or invasive, let's say. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I remember when we were doing... I mean, it's over now, but when we were doing Pitch Wars, that was one of our biggest things. Like, we wanted, give us all the queer books, but, like, you do not have to tell us if you are queer or not. Don't don't feel like you have to share anything that you're not comfortable with. Yeah, yeah. Okay, do you want to talk author stuff, or do you need to go? Where are you on um, time? What's I, happening? I can, I can go for a few more minutes, sure. Are you yeah, sure? Yeah, yeah, because sure. I can also let you go, and I'm... So sorry I'm taking up your entire day. No, no, that's okay. You're not at all. That's totally fine. Okay. Um, okay, so fun stuff. Author questions real quick. What's the hardest revision you've done as an author? The hardest revision I've done? Well, I will say when I was working on my second book, my editor and I went back and forth on it 
for a really long time, like past my due date, things were getting pretty dire. And I was really stressed about it. I mean, it was sophomore novel syndrome uh, to the, you know, to the 11th degree, right? And I was really flipping out about it. And eventually I said to my editor, uh, Deb, I said, Deb, can you give me like, I forget what it was, if it was a month or three weeks or whatnot to like rewrite this from scratch because I feel like I have learned so much about this story and about writing and about what this needs and what it doesn't in the course of our edits that if I could just start over, the next version of this book would be just a million times different. And she was like, yeah, go for it. <laughs> and I did, and that, and it took me like, it was very, very speedy. Um, it took me like, like three weeks maybe. And oh, wow. then um, I turned it in and she's like, look, I've got maybe one or two tiny tweaks, but this is it, like you killed it did it. Wow. So my advice often to writers, I was just tweeting about this the other day, is if you can stomach it, if you can do it, it is better to rewrite than revise. Like rewriting, it doesn't sound like it, but it is such a lifesaver. Like in my instance, there was an entire character, a brother character that was huge in the early drafts I just didn't need. I just did, like he just doesn't exist in the new version. Like he just never got introduced. You know what I mean? Like I didn't need to find a way to make him work. He just... I never wrote it. So I always say to my clients, I know it can be a tough pill to swallow, but if you can, rewrite because you will come up with something that's a million times better simply from having that kind of unfettered freedom to to write whatever you want with the knowledge that you've gained from your earlier draft, you know? Yeah. I love that. Um, Are you a pantser or a plotter? Um, I am a plotter. I am a plotter. I think I am, yeah. Um, Okay. I would say that with my middle grade series, Dimension Y. That was done a little bit more pantsy because every morning I would wake up and I would write. I wasn't writing it thinking I was gonna get it published. I was just trying to make my uh, then girlfriend, now wife, laugh, so. Oh, cute, aw. Yeah, we had just moved in together and so I would wake up every morning, have my coffee, and then by the time she got up, I would have like 10 pages that were just like a larf, you know, just to kind of get her going in the morning. How cute. Um, so, but my rule for that book was any tangent or joke or aside I made as I was writing had to come back later in the book and be justified. So if I went on some goofy little thing about like, you know, this home appliance company in the future, like who built this time machine and like this gag, that had to be, that detail had to become relevant. Like at the end of the book, you know, the home appliance company is the villain or the whatever, you know what I mean? Like. It had to be worked in. So that was a really useful tool for going forward is like every, if, put in whatever you want, but you're gonna have to use it later, you know, which I think is just true for pantsing in general. Now though I plot, um, I like to, and this comes from revising projects and realizing what I need when I'm editing. At a certain point in the pantsing process as you're drafting, I feel like I'm starting a new chapter and I kind of know what I want that chapter to do. So before I start writing, I'll sit down and I'll make a list of like, what has to happen in this chapter? Like what information needs to be conveyed? How do I want the reader to feel? What is kind of the theme of the chapter? What's like the little plot arc, like the beginning, middle and rising action of this chapter that then comes to some kind of mini conclusion. And once I have all that information, I'll step back and I'll think to myself, okay, what is the best way to convey all this? Like, what's the best setting? Like, is this something to do? Does it make sense to do this in a conversation? Should I have this happen in a more dramatic scenario? What's a good, what's a good setting that like metaphorically works for what's being discussed? So 
it all becomes very, very intentional. And I find that gets the best work out of me. You know what I mean? When I'm doing everything kind of as deliberately as I possibly can, that everything matters, you know, everything is there for a reason. And that helps me kind of move forward. I get very nervous when I'm just writing and I'm like, I just introduced this guy because it sounded right. Like, oh God, now he's here. He's in the, he's on the team too. Like this loser, like what am I gonna do with this character? Whereas like, if I'm more intentional, I don't kind of get myself tied up that way, you know? Yes, you know, that all makes sense. I like that. So are are you as normally three weeks fast of a draft? No, no, no. <laughs> or was that only on the one? No, 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 that was, that. the only reason I could write that draft of Cherry Money Baby in three weeks was because I had already been working on different drafts of that book for like a year and a half. Okay. Like I knew the plot and the story and the characters so well that it was like, there was just a million things in my way right? Like it was just what don't you put in as you're writing? Because that was my problem with that book is I, I had got managed to get a second book under contract and I thought I was Shakespeare and it was just full of all this nonsense that <laughs> like was just really distracting and I had to go. So yeah, normally I am not that fast. I think it'll take me probably, uh, when I'm really writing at speed, I'll do six pages a day. Okay. When I'm really at speed, but it takes me a while to build up to that momentum. And, and I will say, um, agenting definitely doesn't leave a lot of extra time for writing. Mm -hmm. And it, what I'll say it really doesn't do is it doesn't leave a lot of mental space for writing. Like after you've been editing and thinking about books and story all day long, like the last thing I want to do at the end of the day is to be like, is to go write. You know what I mean? Think about more books and stories. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a routine when you when you sit down to write other than getting your pages out or? Yeah, so I have a few things that I do to kind of um, get myself in the mood. I do try to write at the same time every day. Um, and I have that in my calendar so I can't book things for that time, whether it be doctor's appointments or work stuff or whatever. Like I'm there, that's my time. But I don't expect myself to write every day or even five days a week every week like I have a schedule that is workable for me it's a, it's the best that I can manage with my day job right mm -hmm. but I have a schedule that I try to stick to I always read or listen to audiobooks immediately before I start writing it's almost like it gets my brain going in, in full sentences. It's like just chatter. I think mm -hmm. the way I work as a writer is I just mimic other people and other things. And I recombine it enough that it's not plagiarism. You know what I mean? So if I'm so if I'm listening to someone that I like and I'm listening to their voice and their cadence, like I can just jump in and suddenly I'm going. You know, I'm kind of mimicking mimicking the sound of full sentences, right? But the other thing I'll do is I will reread what I wrote the day before. So it's almost like I'll start by editing first. Like I'm tweaking, I'm rereading, I'm thinking, oh, that's good, that's fine. On, you know, I'm cutting stuff and then I'll get to the, where I stopped and I'll pick up from there. If that is still really hard, what I will do is I'll take the last page or three paragraphs that I wrote and I will rewrite them. I'll just start typing them over. Uh, and that, again, just getting into that flow, it's almost physiological more than anything else. Like get your, get your fingers moving, Yeah. you know, just get them moving, get words coming out. Um, I once heard someone say, you can't turn a parked car. And I think that's really true. Like, you have to be moving forward. That's a good one. Isn't that cool? Yeah. My key gets stuck in my ignition and it will not turn. It doesn't, it doesn't turn. Can't turn a parked car. So you have to be moving forward to, to make a decision or to change what you're doing. So for me, that means like just getting my fingers moving, moving on the page, you know, it's all about momentum. Nice. How do you stay organized both with your 
author stuff and your agenting stuff like do you have a million spreadsheets over there or yes so i'm like there's just not a lot of bulk processing power in my brain like i was gonna say i'm not that smart but i'll just say like i'm just i just can't keep it all straight in my head i can barely keep this conversation straight so <laughs> it's it's amazing it's astounding to me that i only lost track of what the question was once usually that's like a multi multi time thing me too we're doing really good <laughs> um so oh my god and now i have to do it again you jinx me what was what was the question how do, how do you I stay, stay organized, organized? <laughs> oh my gosh i didn't make that was real that was very legitimate that was awesome i love it okay so how do i stay organized so i have like 20 different google sheets going on at once so i have okay a google sheet for every project that's on submission that has a list of who I sent it to, what date I sent it, when I'm following up, what date they pass, all of that stuff. Folio also, as an agency, has a really uh, robust agent software, basically, that keeps track of, lets me know, hey, there's a payment due on this contract, or hey, this uh, this thing that has a term on it is about to expire. Like, oh. we upload everything into that system, and it helps us keep track of when to follow up on things. I also have a have a little mini calendar that I use uh, on occasion. That's like basically the life cycle of a book. Like the timing of these things is always different, but there are certain things that every book goes through. Like, did you get your first round of edits? Did you get your marketing and publicity plan? Or do you know what that is? Like, have we gotten the cover? Have we gotten blurbs? that I'll kind of use as a checklist to be like, what should I be worrying about right now? Like, where is this book on the list? Because mm -hmm. a big part of the agent's job is sometimes just making sure that the publisher it keeps doing theirs, that things are like moving forward at a pace. You're often being like, hey, that thing you know that you're supposed to do, do it faster or do it more on time. Yeah. You know? So it's your job to kind of keep a macro view of everything. So that's what I'll do for those kinds of things. Okay. You know, for writing, obviously, obviously it's different. I definitely have, I think a lot of writers uh, like me have a folder that's just stuff that I decided not to put in the book but I can't bring myself to completely delete uh, mine is just called like clipped bits like things I clipped out bits I clipped out but I definitely keep that as an organizing structure and like I said I outline a lot the book that I'm working on now every chapter um, is a different playing card oh. so like I'm, I have like the different playing cards or like on a spreadsheet being like okay this is what happens in this chapter this is what happens in that chapter so that's cute um yeah, yeah. So it's difficult to stay organized with so much going on, but I think that every agent has their own different kind of personal systems. And at Folio, we also have like a macro shared official system that we all uh, participate in as well. That's awesome. That makes things easier. Why don't we, I feel like we've done so much. Why don't we wrap up? So do you want to tell us about your books and like where we can find you and everything? Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me online at johnmcusick.com. So that's just my name with my middle initial M as in Michael. I don't even think I have that. Yeah, that it's a website that badly needs updating, but it is, it exists. I would say for um, submission guidelines and when I reopen, I will make an announcement on Twitter. So I'm also John M. Cusick on Twitter. And you can always go to the to foliojunior.com. Um, and I have my official agents page there. Um, and I have my complete submission guidelines. I have my complete taste list and a little bit about me and whatnot. Um, so if you want to query me, that's a good resource. That page will always show whether or not I am currently open to queries or not. So hopefully there's not a lot of guesswork there. Awesome. And then, okay, are there going to be any more Dimension Y books? Um, Do you, can you say that? I will say there is not currently a plan for there to be more Dimension Y books. Um, okay. I'm working on 
a new middle grade book at the moment. I don't know what's going to happen with it, but um, but we'll see. But there's definitely I'm definitely writing you know pretty pretty frequently and and at speed. So I'm hoping to have more stuff um, for people to read very soon. Yay! Um, and do you have links for all your books up on your website as well? I do. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. So you can find those there. Um, yeah. Awesome. Okay. Did you have anything else you want to add, or are you just like get me off of this podcast? No. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Um, no, no, we talked about, okay, so currently closed to queries, but I'll say for the record, when I'm open, I always ask for um, an email that includes your query letter and the first 10 pages or 2,500 words of your manuscript pasted into the body of the email. And please put the word query in the subject line. Uh, that's my only other request. And uh, as I was saying earlier, you know, the things that I'm really looking for right now are novels, so fiction, and that could be graphic novels or prose or novels in verse, uh, but fiction for uh, middle grade readers, young adult readers, and adults in that in the genre spaces, so horror, fantasy, and sci-fi and whatnot, so yeah. Sweet. Thank you. This was so awesome, and I think this is a really great interview. You're welcome. It was absolutely a blast. I had a good time. Good. Yay. Awesome. All right. Yay. Okay. Great to talk to you. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye. Okay, everyone. That's it for episode one. You can find a book list from our chat and all the John links in this week's show notes. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Okay, Jenny. Say goodbye. Nope. <laughs>